We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Podcast today brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC and they'll match your deposit halfway up to 1000 bucks. All of the UFC 265 next week. MyBookie's got all of that action. They've got all the Olympic action. Plenty of NFL prop stuff. Uh, you can get to it by going to mybookie.ag and using my promo code KevinDC. Al Galdi is going to be on the podcast today, at least for the first segment, maybe a second if he wants to stick around. Of course, Galdi's got a great podcast, um, which you can get on any podcast platform. And, you know, there's so much going on in the world of sports since even yesterday's podcast. Um, with Simone Biles and Aaron Rodgers and, you know, all of the Ron Rivera stuff, which we will get to. But I'm going to just start with this simple question because training camp opened up yesterday. What would be the one thing about the upcoming season, Galdi, um, that you would be most disappointed with as it relates to this team? I would be most disappointed if the quarterback play isn't appreciably better. And I, I don't know if that's surprising or not, but the quarterback play was so bad last year overall that to have to go through that again, especially off having brought in a guy in Ryan Fitzpatrick, who I believe over the last few seasons has been a lot better than people give him credit for, I, I really am anticipating a substantial upgrade in the play at that position. Not that it's going to be elite or anything like that, but you know, that Washington, if Washington was 32nd in the NFL in overall quarterback play last year, I really would like to think the team can be at least like middle of the pack this year, you know, make a big leap in that regard. I think that's the kind of thing that could lead to so many other good things happening. Um, I think it will happen. And if it doesn't happen, I am going to be disappointed. If the offense, especially the passing game, isn't remarkably better this year, uh, I think that's going to be a real bummer. Last year, um, and maybe we had this same conversation last year, but last year I remember saying, I'm going to be most disappointed if the defense isn't significantly improved. Now, it didn't have to improve that much to be significantly improved from 2019, but I expected a lot out of the defense last year. I thought it was going to be much better coached. They had added Chase Young. The other talent was a year older. Um, and I'm going to stick with the same thing heading into this year. I think there was, you know, and I've said this many times, it was a significantly improved defense last year. So I didn't end up uh, being disappointed, uh, didn't get disappointed on that particular front. 
Um, now uh, I'm upping the ante on the defense. I want it to significantly improve again. It was a good defense last year. Um, it was in uh, a very inconsistent run defense. They've got to be much better against the run. That will be disappointing if they're not. It means they didn't get better um, in the interior and at linebacker. I think the pieces they've added defensively with William Jackson, uh, we don't know much about Jamin Davis, but you get the return of Matt Ioannidis and even Landon Collins. But really what you get is you get a full off season of Rivera Del Rio, year two of Chase Young, year three of Montez Sweat. Um, all of these young defensive linemen, you know, getting a year older and being more comfortable in the system in year two, I'm going to be really disappointed if the defense doesn't take another major leap. And there are some people out there, Galdi, that would say, well, it doesn't have to take that much of a big leap because it was really great last year. No, it's got to take a bigger leap. We're expecting the expectation of this defense, don't you think, is for it to be dominant. And I think this next season, we should see a jump towards dominant. I don't know if it will be the best defense or the most dominant defense, but it's got to be more dominant than it was last year. Well, I think there's certainly another level the defense can get to, and we had that crystallized in the playoff loss to the Bucks. My concern, though, is this, and I really wonder about this overall in the NFL right now. I don't know that dominant defense is, possible anymore I, I i feel like the way the league is now so offense oriented so passing game oriented like if you look especially in recent seasons even those defenses that we qualify as the best defenses those defenses get got those defenses give stuff up and so you know the, the, the days of like the 2000 ravens the 02 bucks even even like the 2013 seahawks I don't know that that's likely. I don't want to say it's impossible because anything can happen, but I almost feel like we have to recalibrate our measure of great defense. It's kind of like to me in college football. Like Alabama used to stuff everybody, and now Alabama will give up 30 points. Alabama will give up you know 300-yard passing games. Not necessarily because Alabama's defense is terrible, but just that's the way offense is now in college football, and I feel like it's becoming more and more like that in the NFL. So, with this year, no doubt, like there is another level the defense for Washington can get to. But I, I'm kind of preparing myself for there are going to be days where the defense gives stuff up, and you just have to kind of accept that, I think, in the NFL in 2021. Yeah, I don't put it, you know, on the same level of college football. College football, it's almost in, – and what's actually interesting is there have been some really good defensive college football teams over the last couple of years, and they can slow down some of these high-profile offenses but if they don't have a really good offense to go with it it doesn't matter I I would say that that is true in the NFL now you can have a dominant defense but your dominant defense can't lead you solely to a title with mediocre or subpar offense you've got to have really good offense to go with it I think there have been some really good defenses um in recent years but you know there's one that that you remind me of um you know, the Jacksonville defense of a few years ago was truly dominant, and yet it got to a playoff game that it won, that it won over Pittsburgh, but it gave up 42 points. Now, some yep. of that was turnover, you know, fueled, and I think maybe even special teams fueled. But I remember that Jacksonville team from, you know, a few years ago, the 2017 season, that was a dominant defense. 
and they got to the postseason, and if you recall, in a really boring um, playoff game, they beat Buffalo. I think it was like 13-3, to and then they played Pittsburgh on the road, and they won that game, but they didn't win it the way I think people thought they would win it. It was like 45-42 shootout, and then, you know, they actually had New England on the ropes in the AFC title game in Foxborough the next week playing, you know, excellent defense um, as well, but... Yeah, I, I, I think that the days of a Ravens defense with Trent Dilfer winning a Super Bowl are over. I, you know, or they're pretty close to over. You got to have offense to go with it. That Jacksonville team that year, if it had had more than just Blake Bortles, um, I mean, I think Fournette was pretty good that year, but they didn't have any receivers and they had Blake Bortles a quarterback. They didn't need much more, but they needed more to get by New England and potentially win a Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I think that that part's true. But with that said, there is an extra level or two that the Washington defense can climb. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And we saw last year, yeah, especially like early in the year, like the defense was far from great early in the year. As the year went on, the defense got better. Obviously, Washington faced a, uh, a cascade of opposing quarterbacks that wasn't exactly a murderer's row. No. So that helped out. But I, I think the big key for this season really is the passing game being better, more so than the running game. They've got to be able to throw the football more effectively. They've got to have more explosive plays. To, to, to the team's credit, this was certainly recognized. I mean, that, that was clearly a goal in the offseason to set things up so that the offense, the passing game, can be more explosive. And I really think that's what this season comes down to in a lot of ways, because especially with the schedule and all these great quarterbacks the team is set to face, you're not going to be holding teams to 13 points game in, game out. You're going to give some stuff up. So can you match firepower enough to where you can win some games, you know, 31-28, 35-32, that sort of a thing? Yeah, hopefully there aren't too many of those. Um, but I do think you're 100% right. They clearly address the fact that they weren't very explosive in the passing game. And they tried to explose it, uh, a, a, I'm sorry, address it in a much bigger way at quarterback with the swing for Matt Stafford and maybe a few others. And I'm intrigued by Ryan Fitzpatrick. I think you are too. I think that it can't get any worse than it was last year um, overall no. at quarterback. Um, and if it's much better, this is going to, you know, this has a chance to be a pretty good football team. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, sometimes I'm like, Hey, are, are we just so beaten down by bad quarterback play that we build others up just because they're not those who have been here previously. But I, I think with Fitzpatrick, like I said, he certainly statistically has been a lot better than people give credit for. And just if you get away from the numbers, like if you just watch the guy, he brings something to the table that Washington doesn't have and that is, or hasn't had, and that is someone who throws aggressively downfield, someone who is capable of inciting the big play, someone who's had a lot of success taking receivers' games to different levels. Like If you look at Devontae Parker with the Dolphins, right. what Parker did prior to Fitzpatrick's arrival versus what Parker did the last two seasons with Fitzpatrick there, it's almost like two different players. This guy really does impact passing games in effective ways, and I'm excited to see what that could mean for Washington. Yeah, he's a distributor too, you know, and I think they've got, you know, in, in re-signing Logan to, or extending Logan Thomas, um, I think they recognize that beyond this year they might have a guy who's a really good distributor, you know, of the football. In the, in the games last year, 
um, with the Dolphins, you look at some of those games, there were nine and ten receivers catching balls when Fitzpatrick was playing, and they were playing, you know, relatively well offensively early on. And and the tight end's a big, you know, uh, target for him. But he does a great job as a distributor. I think a lot of people recognize or think of, of Fitzpatrick as a gunslinger and a guy that'll take chances, and because of it, will end up having a few bad plays and sometimes costly plays. But he's a phenomenal distributor uh, of the football. You know, everybody, um, you know, everybody's in play as an eligible receiver when he, when he quarterbacks. I, I think that that's, um, that's going to be huge too, uh, and they've added some weapons. Um, next question for Galdi on the football team. And by the way, I, I want to talk to Galdi about – what the Nats will do. Galdi's also part of the Nats chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman and Tim Shovers, so we'll get to that. Uh, give me the player who will prove to be the most valuable offseason acquisition. We've talked about Fitzpatrick, but there are others to consider. You know, the, the playmakers that you mentioned and referred to that they've added. They've added a big piece defensively, maybe two big, uh, big pieces defensively. They've, it, they've added multiple pieces to their offensive line. Uh, I'm not asking who's going to be the most productive, but I'm asking who will be the most valuable ultimately when this season's over of the offseason acquisitions. So I would have to say Fitzpatrick because of the position he plays. I, I don't know if that's too boring of an answer because we just talked about him, but I don't, you know, no, nothing matters like quarterback matters. And so if he can play the position at an appreciably better level than what Washington had last year, I think that makes a ton of difference. And so I'm really looking for that, you know, assuming Fitzpatrick's the guy and starts the bulk of the season. But another name I would throw at you would be William Jackson the third. I think it's easy to kind of lose sight of that signing. You could argue that that was the number one move of the offseason from a standpoint of, hey, they spent you know decent money on the guy. He's someone who plays a really key position on defense, and it's a position like there's a real debate now in football circles of does corner matter the most on defense, more so than edge rushers, because it is such a passing league. And that you have a guy now in William Jackson III who can play man coverage in a way that others have not been able to. Like, we saw Washington's pass defense ultimately be good last year, A, because a lot of the quarterbacks weren't very good, but also B, Washington went with a lot of that zone coverage, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It worked well. Ronald Darby did very well in that regard. But you have someone in William Jackson III who I I think brings more to the table in terms of a skill set. He's someone who has played at a very high level. You know, I, I don't know that he's he, – is he like Jalen Ramsey or like a top-five corner? No. But is he a top, say, 15 corner in the NFL? Yeah, I think that he is. I think he'll allow Jack Del Rio to do some things differently schematically on the back end. And I think what Jackson could end up meaning for Washington this year, especially like, too, you think about a corner who can shadow opposing team receivers. We haven't seen a ton of that. Remember the whole thing with Josh Norman? He's not traveling with Antonio Brown, that sort of thing. Jackson is someone who potentially can do that. And what that could mean for this defense, I I think it's pretty intriguing. Yeah, look, they had, um, you know, a highly ranked pass defense last year, and you said it. I think a lot of that had to do with the opponents and the backup quarterbacks and the third-string quarterbacks they were playing. I don't think it has anything to do with zone versus man. There are a lot of zone teams that get torched um, and end up on the wrong side of that. But, you know, it's not just as I'm sure you've talked about and I've talked about 
um, a lot. Um, the quarterbacks that they're going to be facing this year. To your point, there are so many star receivers they are going to be facing, you know, this upcoming season. You know, you start with Keenan Allen, then you get, you know, uh, you get uh, Diggs in week three. Um, well, you get Galladay in the second game, Diggs in the third game. You get uh, Michael Thomas potentially. You get Tariq Hill. You get Devontae Adams. You get Mike Evans. You get DK Metcalf. You get, you know, CD Lamb, Amari Cooper. They're going to have to be a better, um, you know, they're going to have to have a guy that can really cover uh, or they're, they're potentially going to get torched by some really good offenses. But I think it still comes back to um, against any of these teams. They've got to establish a much better and more consistent run defense. And I think all of that will lead to, you know, what Ron Rivera said the day he got here, which is we're going to stop the run on the way to the quarterback. And, you know, pass rush, you know, helps everything. Um by the way, I agree. I, Fitzpatrick is the answer for, that I have. I mean, I hope that he's the most valuable offseason acquisition. If he isn't, then they're probably not going to be a double-digit win team. I guess Taylor Heineke and or Kyle Allen could step in and lead them to something um, significant if it's not Fitzpatrick. But I think the answer to that is Ryan Fitzpatrick. This is a roster, Al, that I think people are as confident in the overall strength of the roster um, as they've been in a long, long time. With that said, who among the projected starters, and I'm talking mostly veterans because we don't know what Jamin Davis is, um, who concerns you the most? Well, I do wonder about someone like Charles Leno. They bring him in. He got released by the Bears. I know just because you get released, that doesn't mean that you're a terrible player, but there's a reason you get released. You know, we've seen Washington get burned by this kind of thing in the past where the team brings in someone who, whose name you recognize, who you know has had success. You say, geez, how come that guy was available? And he comes here and he's a shell of what he used to be. You know, whether you're talking about Ryan Clark in a second go-round. I remember when Jim Hazlitt was the defensive coordinator the free safety that he loved was this guy, Ashimago Atagwe, and Washington yeah, gets him, and, and he, wasn't, he wasn't close to being what he was. So I, I do wonder a bit about Leno, and you know, not that I think he's going to be a train wreck, but there's a reason he got let go. So like, you have to say, all right, he's going to be playing left tackle. Is he going to be good at that spot? So that's the sort of thing I do wonder about. You know, along the same line, someone like Bobby McCain. Like, I, I look at Bobby McCain, and I say, man, there's a lot to like about this guy. Why did the Dolphins let him go? And then I'm like, hmm. The Dolphins are a smart team. The Dolphins have a defensive-minded head coach of Brian Flores, who I think is doing a really good job. They obviously have their reasons for this. So if Bobby McCain ends up being the starting free safety or ends up playing a lot at nickel corner, which he's done in the past, uh, is he up to the task? Or did the Dolphins realize something with Bobby McCain that maybe the rest of us did not? You know, it's interesting. The contract that Washington gave McCain is like a nothing contract. So there wasn't a big market for McCain. So just things like that, right? Like when you, when you gobble up those who've been discarded by others, you always have to wonder about why were those guys discarded by the others? Yeah, I mean, look, you, 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 could, you could make the case that Ryan Fitzpatrick has had all of these opportunities, and yet every single team he's ever been on, they've always been looking for a better-looking blonde, basically, um, than him. So, 
you know that that is uh, I I think we're excited because the quarterback play was so bad, and he's coming off two of his better years of his career, really the two best years of his career, and you know he's got some of that leadership and some of that swag and the whole thing. Um, but those that are skeptical have good reason, I think, to be skeptical. I just think we're catching him, and I'm more. I guess I'm more optimistic that we're catching him at maybe you know uh, the, the 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 biggest moment of his career and maybe the best moment of his career. I'm just going to say that I, I don't know why this team continues to put as much faith into their kicker um, like they have. This is the second straight coaching staff that is totally bought in to Dustin Hopkins. This year is going to be a year that if they do have a good team and end up with a good record, more likely than not, they're going to win a lot of close games. They're going to be in a lot of close games. You know, it's uh, you know, I've never played the schedule game, and people are criticizing me for playing it more than I've ever played it before. And that's just because yeah. of the slate of offensive quarterbacks and you know, and and receivers and just offensive teams that they're facing. I don't know that any any teams ever faced this level of top ten quarterbacks or the volume of top ten quarterbacks. But you know, they were in close games last year, um, and. I just I know why coaches like him. I know why special teams coaches love him. The ball explodes off his foot and it gets elevation right away. They're always looking for that. But I still don't trust him in a big spot. And I, I I'm surprised that they didn't bring in and they didn't look for an answer. There aren't many of them out there. You know, there are teams like the Vikings last year that had a major problem with special teams and kicking. And, you know, they, they don't, it's not like there are a bunch of great kickers sitting around there waiting to be signed. Um, but I, 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 I was concerned the last few years with Hopkins. Hopefully yeah. it works out. Yeah, I, I talked about Hopkins at length on my podcast recently. It's interesting. Ron Rivera, as you likely remember, after the Detroit game last year, said they were considering replacing Hopkins. Yeah. Ended up not doing that. The hope is that the Dustin Hopkins of the second half of last season is a guy on display this year. Hopkins did not get off to a good start last year, but actually as the season went on, was yep, good. He, he made the bulk of his field goals. He was great in the win at Pittsburgh. So you got to hope that that guy is there. It is remarkable, though. Dustin Hopkins is going into year seven of being Washington's kicker. Washington got him after week one of the 2015 season. He's been the kicker ever since. Like, when I was a kid, you know, Chip Miller was Washington's kicker. And I, was, and I was always like, wow, he's been the kicker forever. We're now in, like, Chip Miller territory in terms of how long Dustin Hopkins has been Washington's kicker. It is remarkable because I don't think most people view him as, like, this all-time great kicker in Washington history. But he's had a tenure that would be reflective of someone who's had this great run. I mean, he's lasted through multiple coaching staffs. He's lasted through struggles. He's been hurt. Remember they had that guy Nick Rose a few years back yeah. uh, when Hopkins was dealing with an injury. Hopkins retained his job then. I mean, it, he, there's like a Teflon nature to him that really is remarkable. Every year he's the kicker, and every year it's almost like he's unchallenged, which is also interesting because he, he isn't Justin Tucker. He isn't Steven Gostkowski. But yet every year it's like, no, no, yeah, Dustin Hopkins, he's our kicker. Washington re-signed him this offseason, re-signed him early in the offseason, and every indication is that he's going to have the job this year unchallenged. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, he he did have a better finish to the season on field goals, but he missed that crucial extra point 
in the Seattle game, um, which was huge. When they you know, were driving late, they were down five instead of down three. Um, would have had a chance to win. Nick Rose is a great is a great pull because I think, and I'm trying to look this up real quickly. I think he had in a in a game against the Vikings at FedEx. I think he kicked like a 56 yarder yes. in that yes, game. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, y- you can't be in this league in this you know in this age a 79.4 percent field goal percentage guy. You just can't. Uh, but again, I I know the reason that coaches and special teams coaches love him. The ball explodes off his foot. It gets elevation. He's a great kickoff guy as well. But, man, there have been big, big missed kicks over the years and even some big missed extra points over the years like last year uh, in the Seattle game. Um, Before we get to the Nats, I want to get to Ron Rivera. For those of you that, that missed it, Ron Rivera, um, by the way, I had him on the radio show this morning. You can go to the team980.com and listen to that interview. I recorded it yesterday right after the radio show, so it was basically 24 hours later. And so all of the vaccine stuff had not come out. Um, the reports yesterday that Washington had the lowest player vax rate in the NFL at 60% having received at least one dose Um, That means 40% of their players, of their 90, not of the final 53. We don't know what it'll be of the final 53. But 40% of their 90 haven't even gotten the first shot. So they are clearly hesitant to get the vaccine. It's the lowest rate in the NFL. The average in the league right now is 84%. There are 14 teams, according to reports, that have over 90% of their players vaccinated. And Ron Rivera was upset about this. And Rivera said that, you know, he is immune deficient um, and that he's frustrated, uh, very frustrated with uh, the response, even though they've really uh, attempted um, to educate and inform. They brought in that world-leading, you know, immunologist about a month and a, a month and a half ago. He said, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm beyond frustrated. And I took calls, Al, this morning on this simple question. You know, will this response from Ron Rivera about a low, the lowest vac- vaccination rate in the NFL, is it potentially a team-dividing issue? Do you think it is or isn't? Uh, I don't, because I think what's going to happen in part is if you're a borderline player, you're not going to be here because of this. Ron has shown himself not to be shy about getting rid of people. And so, look, I mean, if you're uh, an obvious starter, he's not going to cut you over this. But, you know, if it's 50-50, if he could go either way, if there's someone who's close enough to you, I think this could end up costing you. I also think, too, as time goes on, hopefully we do get away from this thing and it, it ends up not being that big of a deal that guys aren't vaccinated. You know, some of the stuff that's going on right now, there's a lot to take in clearly. But, like, the NFL puts out that big memo of, hey, uh, if we have to cancel games, you're not going to get paid, etc. The, the NFL never canceled any games last year when we didn't have vaccines. The NFL's not going to cancel any I games agree. this year. Like, like, I, I, I totally that, that, agree. That, to that. me... That, that, I, I understand what the NFL is yeah, doing they're, when they're it puts not, that stuff yeah. out there, but that, that's overly dramatic, okay? Yeah. You never canceled anything last year. You're not going to do that this year. So, you know, I, I think that 
this is not something, obviously, that everyone agrees with on the team, right? Like, obviously, there are players who don't want to get vaccinated. We heard Montez Sweat speak, and he's clearly not alone. But I also think this can be something where people disagree with him, but it doesn't mean that, like, they hate him. You know, maybe it's, it's, it's a finer line to walk than I'm making it sound to be. But I, I think that they can navigate this. What, what I think that we have to get our arms around is that they're probably not going to get much beyond where they're at. Like, I always kind of assume, well, eventually they'll get to 80, 85 percent. I don't know about that. The fact that they're still, you know, at what, 50, 60 percent, whatever it is, I'm not sure how much more that increases. And obviously this is reflective of what's going on in society. But, you know, the notion of like one day we're going to wake up and the whole team is vaccinated, uh, I don't know that that's going to go down here. I mean, I think people have their reasons for not getting vaccinated, and I don't know that those reasons are just going to evaporate. Already uh, today, um, Chase Young, Matt Ioannidis, Deron Payne among the players wearing masks, which is mandatory for unvaccinated players. Um, Chase Young has done a lot of, uh, on social media retweeting stuff. It's clear uh, that he is anti-vaccination. He's one of the team leaders. Um, I, I Look, two things. One, uh, when the NFL put out the memo, I totally agree with you. I, I think that no games will be cut. Uh, I think players could get cut. Um, certainly players on the bubble, I think that's going to be a big issue for them. But I do not see a game... Um, being totally canceled. Could we have postponed games? Why, why not? I mean, like, what's the big deal? Last year, We are in unique times. They figured it out last year. Even though they lost big money on Thanksgiving night by not having a game in primetime, Baltimore-Pittsburgh, and having to move that to a Wednesday afternoon, you know, that, that was some give back to, to NBC. They don't want to be in that position, but that memo was about putting the pressure on the teams to to get their players um, vaccinated. I don't think any games will be forfeited. With that said, players won't play in games. Players will lose practices and games, and if you're on the lower end of the vaccination rate, you're more uh, – the probability is higher that you could potentially lose key players for key games. Um, so it is a competitive disadvantage potentially – to be on the lower end of the vaccination thing. Um, on the first question I asked you, I don't think this will be a team-dividing issue. I think this will be smoothed over. Um, I think what will be very interesting, Al, is how many of the players, how many of the 60% of the 90 are roster spots 53, 53 through 90? Because it's very possible you could get to opening day and the number is much lower than 60 if a lot of the players that are vaccinated are players that are going to get cut, you know, that weren't yeah. going to make the team anyway. And some of your team leaders being players who aren't vaccinated, what you have, I think, in other NFL cities that have high vaccination rates is you've got team leaders who are vaccinated and are putting the pressure on their teammates to get vaccinated. Well, if your team leaders, guys like Chase Young and Montez Sweat, certainly on defense, aren't vaccinated and they're anti-vaccination, uh, um, that may uh, slow the process. But I don't see this like you don't. I don't see it being a big team-dividing issue. I do think it's nuts 
um, personally, and this isn't about vaccine shaming, um, because I think everybody's got the right, you know, your body, your choice. And I think, you know, there are, you know, cases to be made that if you had COVID and you built up antibodies that, you know, waiting and being a little bit more hesitant right now doesn't, you know, isn't totally illogical. But I think being a part of a, part of a team and putting that team's, um, you know, performance potentially at risk when you, uh, you know, by the time you're three or four years old, already have three or four shots in you for mumps and measles and rubella and smallpox and everything else. I mean, your father's a doctor. I'm assuming your father told you when, when you can get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Yeah, I've talked to him about it. A, a lot of the stuff that's out there really is crazy. Like one of my favorite things is people that make a huge deal of, well, if you get vaccinated, you can still get COVID-19. That's true of almost every vaccine out there. That's not unique to the COVID-19 vaccines. Vaccines aren't meant to make it so that you never, ever can get the thing. Like, it'd be wonderful if that was the case, but that's not the case. The efficacy of these vaccines is spectacular, 90-plus percent. Not the J&J, not the Johnson & Johnson, yeah. Right, but the other ones are are really good. The, the fact that they're this good is huge, and that's a huge win for science, right? I mean, it was supposed to be, it was going to take years to develop of these course. vaccines. We did it in basically the time of a pregnancy, like nine months. So it's just, you know, there's a lot of stuff with this. I, you know, I mean, I'm one of these people who thinks a lot of this is, is, you know, there's politics involved, there's misinformation involved. I, I think everyone understands that by now. And, you know, there are some people who, like you said, if you had COVID-19, like, for instance, Matt Ioannidis, all right? So some people are making a big deal of Ioannidis being matched up and not potentially having been vaccinated. Well, Ioannidis is one of the guys who was put on a COVID-19 list last year. So uh, perhaps he had it, and he has the antibodies, and he's like, well, I don't need the vaccine. So, you know, everyone's kind of going to be different in that regard. It, it was a powerful moment, too, with Ron, you know, saying, hey, I'm a few nodes deficient. Like, I, I, I guess we all kind of suspected that with him having had cancer, but we weren't sure of that. For him to reveal that, for him to really sound off on his frustration on Tuesday – it's not something uh, clearly that you're seeing everywhere, and he put a voice to that, and he's, he's clearly trying to pressure these guys to get vaccinated. I don't know how well it's going to work. Uh, you know, again, like you, I'm not big into shaming people into doing this, but, uh, you know, this team, which did such a good job with this last year, it really does stand out that it's been among the worst, if not the worst teams, in terms of getting guys vaccinated. And and yet, you know, a year ago they without a vaccination they they sailed through the season without any issues whatsoever. One of the few teams not to have any. So, you know, that could be coincidence, that could be luck, or that could have been something that they did. I tend to think it's probably a combination of both. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, there's a lot of uh, look. I, I'm not going to sit here and try to to say that there's a lot of complexity to the decision, but there's a lot of complexity to the information and you know where yep. where where you get the information and, and what you believe. By the way, Lamar Jackson not practicing today in Baltimore um, because of issues related to COVID uh, nineteen. Remember, Baltimore had lots of issues um, last year uh, with COVID. Uh, yeah, try to, try to start canceling some of these games with the new TV deal, um, and see how the networks feel about it. Postpone them, reschedule them. It was fine last year. They got through every single game and nobody really sweated the fact that on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, you had to watch a game at five o'clock. Um, 
Anyway, uh, last one on the football team, and then I want to get to the Nats with you and what's uh, what's upcoming. I do sense and I do feel like, and you're already seeing it with some of the pictures that are coming out of Richmond with the crowds that are there. Now, we'll find out what the crowds actually are, but they have been they were lined up early this morning. And that's typically the case with the first day where fans are allowed to be in into training camp. Even when they've been terrible, there have been some lines on that very first day. But I think the expectations, Al, are as high as they've been in a while. Um, national pundits, you know, are weighing in on Washington as a team that, you know, many think will win the division. Uh, many think have a chance to win playoff games. They all point to the defense, you know, and some of the additions offensively. Um, a, speak um, in your own words to the expectations relative to where we've been in the past. And then B, whether or not you think they can reach them. Yeah, so I love seeing the big crowds, at least initially at camp. We'll see if that continues. I do think, though, there's an energy with this team. There is, you know, sort of like an oomph with the fan base with this team that we haven't had in a while. I think that's a function of a lot of different things, you know, coming out of the pandemic, not being able to do something like go to training camp last year as a reason. You know, you have in Ron Rivera now a head coach who is, like, universally beloved, you know, and there, there aren't many people in the NFL – with higher approval ratings than the approval rating <laughs> for Ron Rivera. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's so funny the juxtaposition. Washington may have the single most despised person in the NFL in Dan Snyder and maybe the single most beloved person in Ron Rivera. Uh, and you also have some star power now. Like Chase Young is, is, I don't want to say superstar, he's only played for one year, but he's tracking toward that. Like He, he has a, a name value and a cachet that not many Washington players have had in recent years. So I, I think it's pretty cool to have all of that going on here. In, in terms of Washington delivering on the hype, look, I think this is going to be a, a solid to pretty good team this year. I, I don't think it's going to be a great team. I'd love for that to be the case. I think it's, you know, being a, a little uh, fanboy to just, you know, assume it's going to be the case. But I, I think they're going to be good. I, I think it's going to be a, a kind of year where, because the schedule, at least for now, looks like it's going to be a lot harder, the team could be better, but the record could be worse. But I think we as fans will be able to tell, did this team take another step forward? And that's really what I'm hoping for for this year. I I know progression in the NFL isn't always linear, but if last year was sort of a a surprising season in which a lot of things sort of bounced away, what I want this year is is for this year to be not, you know, last year you could argue was an empty calorie playoff season. We're like, yeah, they made the playoffs, but that was a flawed team in a lot of ways, especially on offense. What you want to see this year is a team that is good in multiple facets and that you look at and you say, all right, maybe the record was only 8-9, and nine, but boy, was that a good 8-9 and nine team. Boy, was that a team. You, know, you lost some close games, but they were so much better on offense. The defense did take that next step. And the team, even in games that lost, was a really tough out. Like You want to see that next step taken this year. I think if we see that, we'll be pleased with the season, and I do expect to see that. Yeah, I... I... I expect that we will see an improved football team that could potentially produce um, lesser results than last year. Uh, now, not less than seven wins. If it's an improved football team, they're going to win at least eight, but eight could be eight and nine. Um, nine could be nine and eight, and it may not m- mean playoffs. But I think to your point, I think those of us um, that watch closely and watch every single game, 
I'd be I'd be upset if we didn't see a team that was improved on both sides of the ball. And th- th- that could mean that they're in really good games against some really good teams if the teams on their schedule end up being as good as um, you know a-, a lot of people potentially think they are, at least on offense. Uh, but um, I don't know that that delivers um, from a playoff perspective. I hope it does, uh, but, you know, it's the NFL, man. Yeah, uh, it's it's impossible to predict. I do think it's fascinating, though, you, what you said about um, about Ron Rivera, that, you know, he may have the highest approval rating of any coach in the league. I think a lot of that has to do with the cancer, A, but B, um, side by side with the worst owner um, in the league, yep. and and it and a team yep. that appears to be making progress in the face of all um, that the owners produced um, from an, you know uh, negatively. Uh, anyway, uh, can we talk about the Nats? Absolutely. All right, we'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Al Golding joining us on the podcast. Of course, Al's got his own podcast. You can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. He also does a Natch Chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman from Masson and Tim Shovers. Uh, and that Natch Chat podcast is really one of the best recap, you know, post-game shows of Nats games you can find anywhere. Well, they won last night over the Phillies, snapping a five-game losing skid. Trey Turner pulled from the game after testing positive for COVID-19. And now all attention, um, even before last night, uh, is directed towards the trade deadline. Al, what do you expect is coming in the next few days? Well, I think they're going to sell and sell hard. And I think it's 100% the right call. I think it is kind of comical because a few weeks ago, certainly a few months ago, um, people got all bent out of shape if you even brought up the notion of trading away Max Scherzer. And now here we are, and it's the most obvious thing to do. And what I think is funny is the team is totally on board with doing this. Every inkling of reporting that's out there is that the Nats are moving aggressively to trade Max, and it looks like they're going to trade him sooner rather than later. You know, the Nationals are in a really difficult spot. Their farm system is atrocious, and, and I, I don't use that word lightly. Their How did that happen? Is... How did that happen? So a lot of it, to be honest with you, is bad drafts and, and bad player development. Uh, there's an excuse that people make, which is, well, they've been contenders. They've had to trade away a bunch of guys. Yeah, but a lot of those trades happened years ago now. That, that, that's kind of a convenient thing to keep saying. 
look, Mike Rizzo's been a great general manager, but his recent draft track record isn't very good. And the Nationals, for whatever reason, at the minor league system, just aren't developing guys like a good organization should. You know, they're in kind of a slump when it comes to that. And so their farm system is regarded, it's not just like one of the poor ones, it's regarded as the worst one in baseball. And not just by like one ranking system, by like multiple people out there. So they really have to fix it because nothing dooms the club in the long term more than a bad farm system. You've got to be able to replenish talent at the major league level. And the Nats have not been able to do that. One of the really glaring things about this national season has been when the Nats call someone up from the minors, it's always someone in his 30s. It's someone like Gerardo Parra or Yadiel Hernandez or this guy Paolo Espino. The Nats don't have young blood ready to come to the major league level. The Nats, when they've needed extra bodies, haven't gone to the minors even. The Nats have done things like trade for Alcides Escobar, you know, or, or sign this guy Rene Rivera to be a catcher. Right. Guys in their 30s, guys who people thought were shot. That's the, that's the terrible state of the farm system. So they really have to address that. And so to me, at the very least, all of the free agents to be need to be traded. All of the guys who can leave the team for nothing at the end of the season need to be traded. So Max Scherzer, Brad Hand, Daniel Hudson, Kyle Schwarber, Jan Gomes, Josh Harrison, those six guys to me should be gone come 4 p.m. Eastern on Friday. Uh, I hope that's the case. We'll see if that's the case. What about Trey Turner? So with him, you can wait. He's not a free agent until after next season. So you've got a year-plus left of control on him. The recent trend with guys like that has been for them to actually be traded in the offseason, thinking about Francisco Lindor, thinking about Mookie Betts. But, if, look, if you can get a good deal for him now, I would do it. I, I, I think with, with Trey, you know, the issue becomes, okay, well, don't you want to keep him long-term? You do, but two things. Number one, after next season, so in other words, uh, after his contract is up, He's going into his age 30 season. So, you know, you'd be in that dicey spot of paying a guy in his 30s for what he's done in his 20s. And that's one of the things that gets clubs in trouble. The Nats could actually end up playing this in, like, the ultimate analytical way, which is you have a guy in his 20s, his peak physical years, you underpay him because he's in his arbitration years, and then you let someone else overpay him in his 30 years, in his decline years. And so if Turner is asking for Lindor money, Lindor from the Mets got a 10-year, $341 million deal. I like Trey Turner. I'm not paying him that. I'm not giving him a $300-plus-million-dollar contract, especially off the debacle that now is the Steven Strasburg contract. So if you can do Turner, say, for $150 million, maybe $200 million, I'd be open to that. But if this is going to be one of these mega deals, I, I don't blame the Nats for not signing him to that. So I would look to trade him, but you don't have to do it this week. You can't wait until the offseason. Uh, I want to follow up on the Strasburg deal being a disastrous deal. Where do you, where does Max Scherzer go, and what do they get back from Max Scherzer? I know people aren't going to understand or know the names, but what would you be looking for coming back? So kind of a general way to evaluate prospects is that there are these top 100 lists that come out from Baseball America right. and something called MLB Pipeline, which is the prospect arm of MLB.com. What you're looking for here are hopefully multiple top 100 prospects. Now, I don't know how likely that is. The market for these in-season trades uh, has come down in recent years. So, like, 
getting a, a, a blue chip prospect back for a two month rental that used to be something you could do. It's, it's something that the Yankees famously did when they traded away Aroldis Chapman and got back Labor Torres. You're not seeing that happen as much now. So I, I think you really, unfortunately, just have to take the best that you can get, the best offer. So there's a lot of talk about the National League West teams. You know, that, that, that is an arms race right now. That division is something else with the Giants and the right. Dodgers and the Padres. So perhaps you can incite a bidding war between those three teams. Uh, maybe a team like the Boston Red Sox uh, is, is uh, you know, with the season Boston's having, might be open to Scherzer. Maybe the Yankees, who, you know, uh, you would think are desperate, might be open to Scherzer. But there are definite teams that are in on him. It's important to keep in mind, too, Max is what's called a 10-5 and five guy, 10 years in the majors, five years with the same team each of the last five years. So he's got uh, trade uh, veto rights. So he can dictate where he goes. He can not approve a trade to one spot, but approve a trade to another spot. The reporting has been that he'll approve a trade, but it just has to be to a team of his liking. So, you know, you're going to have to work through that. That's why, by the way, the Nats need to settle on a deal or a potential deal soon because it may take some time to work through the no-trade stuff with Max. So you can't just do the deal at 359 on Friday. You're going to have to figure this out probably by Thursday and then get back to Max, say, okay, we have a deal on the table with the Dodgers. Are you good to go with them and, uh, and, and play it from there? I've read the same thing where they have to get this done quickly because of the, you know, the list of teams that he might not accept to trade to. Why don't they just find out right now the teams that he doesn't want to get traded to and work off of that? There might be a benefit to letting this go until the last minute and having, you know, a true bidding war heat up. Oh, you could. Uh, and maybe they have done that. Uh, so that's, that's possible. I, I don't know, like, how much they're involving him in all this right now, but that's certainly possible. The other thing is that he's due to start Thursday, which is crazy. I would be shocked if he makes that start, but um, we'll see. Uh, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a tumultuous last few weeks with the Nets, so who knows what ends up happening. I just in in listening to you and thinking about especially that National League West, where the third place team. Um, you know, are, are the Padres, and they're like 17 games or whatever over 500. You know, usually the the best deal comes in at the last minute. You know, and and you want yeah. that bidding war to develop. So hopefully they don't they don't do it uh, too far in advance. With respect to Strasburg and his season ending surgery, this is obviously. Um, the, the theme of his career is never being quite healthy enough, and he's got all these years left on the seven-year, $265 million or whatever it was deal that he did a, a few years ago. How bad is this deal right now for, for the franchise? Well, it, it's, a, it's a calamity from a sports standpoint. This is the worst contract in pro sports, and uh, I, I think with everything going on with the Nationals, so you have all the trade stuff, you have, you know, Trey Turner testing positive for COVID-19. It wasn't that long ago you had a game suspended due to gunfire outside National Park. The number one development over the last few weeks is what came out yesterday with Strasburg. This is a huge deal. What he got diagnosed with, I don't think this is getting enough attention. This, this thing that he got diagnosed with, thoracic outlet syndrome, that is a doomsday scenario for pitchers now. That, that, that is what Tommy John surgery was like 30 years ago. Like, we know now with Tommy John, guys undergo it, come back from it just fine, sometimes come back from it even better. Some guys have undergone it multiple times. TOS is something very different. TOS is a career wrecker, a career ruiner. When people talk about someone like Matt Harvey, what happened to Matt Harvey? TOS is what happened to Matt Harvey. TOS ruined Matt Harvey. 
TOS has, has ravaged careers. And, you know, with Strasburg, I have to say, I, I genuinely feel sorry for him. Like, he, his career is never going to be the same now. His career, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, his career, in essence, could be over because of this procedure that he's supposed to undergo on Wednesday. He, we don't know when he's going to pitch again. Well, Matt Harvey's and, come back and pitch. He actually pitched pretty well against the Nats on Saturday night because I was there. But um, how many careers has it ended? Well, ended like, okay, Harvey's career isn't over, but he's, right. he's never the same again. But right. Like Matt Harvey underwent this. Uh, Josh Beckett underwent this. There, you know, it's not a lengthy list because it's, it's not something that everyone undergoes. Is there anybody the that's been a success after it? No, not really. Not, not, I mean, a- Alex Cobb underwent it, so he's been okay. But no one comes back from it and is like as good as he was before, okay? And especially with someone like Strasburg, who's already in his 30s and has a lengthy injury history, this does not look good at all. Like, I, I really can't overstate this. This, is, this was horrendous news, and it's horrendous for him personally, and it's horrendous for the Nationals. This contract is a complete debacle. Seven years, $245 million. He's made seven total starts over these last two regular seasons. And the Strasburg, who we came to know right in 2019, there's a very good chance we never see that guy again. I don't even know if he's going to make it through this contract. In fact, I think it's almost 50-50 whether he ends up having to retire at some point over the next few years. And again, wow. I'm not, I don't say this stuff flippantly. Yeah. I'm not trying to be like overly, oh my God, you know, the world is ending. Like, TOS is a big deal in baseball. It's not good at all. It's basically the last thing you want as a pitcher. Maybe he can buck the trend. I mean, obviously everyone's going to be rooting for him. But uh, but th- this is a very bad predicament that the Nats are in now with him in this contract. You know, in thinking about the team next year, if you start unloading all those people, obviously the untouchable is Soto. Um, but what do you really – I mean, it's amazing that two years after winning the World Series, worst farm system and a team that no one will recognize when it takes the field in 2022. Yeah, I mean, look, they could, in theory, trade some of these guys and re-sign them, okay? Well, I mean, Scherzer did happen. say he wants to find a place to get traded to where he can stick around and sign an extension, you know, if it's in L.A. Yeah. or San Diego or San Francisco. Right, so I don't know how likely doing that is. It is possible. But, look, all these guys can leave you at the end of the year. So if, if you don't want to trade them, uh, they're going to go bye-bye at the end of the season because these guys aren't stupid. They, they read the writing on the wall. Like, to the people who don't want to trade Max Scherzer, what would be better? That he walked away at the end of the year to go to a real contender and you get nothing back for him? And that was it with Al Galdi. We had some phone issues uh, that we could not overcome there. Um, but it's great to catch up with Al, get his thoughts on the football team, and certainly get his expertise um, as it relates to uh, the Nat situation as they will be sellers here over the next uh, 24 uh, to 48 hours um, as we approach uh, the trade deadline. Uh, a few more things to finish up on right after these words from a few of our sponsors. I always find it interesting 
when training camp begins and all of the beat reporters, and we've got a really good group of beat reporters that cover the team. Obviously, you know, I, I, I like a lot of them. John Kime, Ben Standig, J.P. Finley, um, Nikki Jabala, Michael Phillips, the list goes on and on um, of people covering the team that uh, I really think they do a phenomenal job, in, you know, on the beat. You know, there's a difference between the guys on the beat and people who are columnists or people um, like me who do long-form talk shows. Um, The people on the beat are reporters. They're there to report what's going on. Now, some of them also have opinion formats. You know, J.P. Finley's doing a radio show right now. Ben Standing has a podcast. Um, But, you know, Ben's primary job is being the beat reporter for The Athletic. And so I always think in these early days of training camp as, you know, the first day and all of them are reporting on, as Ben did just recently, uh, he writes, we just had a Taylor Heineke deep completion to Sammy Rays. Go nuts, WFT Twitter. Uh, and you get that coming out and – there is an audience for that. There is definitely a market for that. And that always fascinates me because honestly, the regular season ends up being so much different than anything we see even in the preseason games, let alone in a training camp practice. And, you know, as we all know, sometimes by the time we get to the middle of the NFL season, it doesn't even closely reflect what we saw in the early season uh, as far as a football team goes. But there is clearly an audience for blow-by-blow training camp play-by-play that always interests me. To me, the big stories that come out of training camp are obviously the ones you don't want, which are injuries to key players. And then, you know, learning from what the coaches tell you and what the reporters are seeing in terms of who's taking the most first team reps. And that's going to start to give you clues as to who's going to make the team. And we'll get a lot of that too in the preseason games. You don't necessarily need that uh, from the training camp practices. Uh, but, you know, those are the things that come out of training camp to get wrapped up into how Jimmy Moreland, you know, plays Diami Brown in a seven on seven drill, uh, I think is a bit much, but I, uh, I'm not blaming those, uh, out there that, that give you that kind of detail. Cause clearly there are people that are into it. Now there was something tweeted out by one of the beat reporters earlier, um, this morning, uh, or within the, hour, the last hour or so. Uh, that I actually am interested in. Nikki Javala from the Washington Post wrote that Steven Sims, Dax Milne, Isaiah Wright, and DeAndre Carter are taking reps at punt returner. I have wondered, you know, who is the punt returner? They haven't had a big-time punt returner. And remember, last year, Steven Sims Jr. was a disaster. Like, at one point, it was like, how do you even risk putting him back there again? Uh, I don't know that Steven Sims Jr. or Isaiah Wright or DeAndre Carter or Dax Milne are even going to make the team. They're all receivers with guys like McLaurin, Samuel, Deami Brown, Cam Sims, Adam Humphreys, and maybe even Antonio Gandy-Golden in front of them. That's six guys. I didn't even mention Kelvin Harmon. Now, if one of those guys is good enough to be a receiver and is their best punt returner, that may be the difference in keeping them on that final, uh, you know, post that final cutdown. But, 
you know, there are guys like Danny Johnson who are on the team. Um, he's been back there before. You know, it's possible that a guy like Antonio Gibson could be used potentially or Stroman. I think that's one of those things that, you know, we're going to learn in the preseason games. They're going to give guys that are on the border of making the team anyway a chance to to really shine as a punt returner, as special teamers. Um, but they don't have anybody right now that's obvious as a punt returner. Uh, I don't know that that Jarrett Patterson, who may or may not make the team as an undrafted free agent out of Buffalo, um, does it. You know, Lamar Miller's done it before. Um, but I don't know how many backs they're going to keep. You know, it's Gibson, McKissick, and Barber right now, I would think, are the best bets to make the final roster. But who knows? Maybe uh, maybe uh, Lamar Miller or Jarrett Patterson would be a fourth and then would be in there as a returner. You know, I, I'm not so sure that Kendall Fuller couldn't uh, be a part of that uh, either. Um, anyway, that will be one of those things that maybe we won't even know, to be honest with you, until final cutdowns and we get to the opener. But punt returner is something that it would be nice to have somebody that could really flip the field on occasion without the threat of fumbling. Um, because we've had more threats of fumbling in recent years than field flippers. Uh, that's a big part of the game. You know, kick returner, not as much anymore. Um, but punt returner, still important. Back to the vaccination um, rates uh, with Washington um, and Ron Rivera's uh, response, which we talked about with Galdi earlier. I'm assuming at this point that many of you have already seen this, but if you haven't, T.J. Ward, uh, uh, a past safety in the NFL, a pretty good one in Denver um, and in various spots, uh, saw the Ron Rivera reaction to the uh, vaccination rates on his football team. And T.J. Ward decided to respond on Twitter. One of the tweets that he put out there was, don't blame the players for your lifelong health decisions. Uh, I've never seen, that's not true, I have probably, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen a more overwhelming negative response to a tweet. Many times you'll get, I'm with you, brother, well said. You know, at least one out of 10. It was 10 out of 10, and there were hundreds, if not thousands, of responses. He pulled the tweets eventually, and they all said essentially the same thing. You ignorant, mean-spirited person. What a dummy. Like Ron Rivera chose cancer. One of the, you know, I'm sure it's, it doesn't go down as a top five or a top tenor, but it's up there in, in terms of athletes in terms of some of the dumbest and meanest tweets of all time. Uh, Aaron Rodgers reported yesterday after they got whatever deal they got worked out, and they traded for Randall Cobb. Who knew that Randall Cobb was the reason that Aaron Rodgers wasn't coming back? But I did get a kick out of what Aaron Rodgers was wearing. He showed up um, in an office uh, T-shirt, uh, a Kevin Malone uh, t-shirt. He's a huge Office fan. I'm a big fan of Brian Baumgartner's um, Deep Dive Office podcast. I listen to it all the time. And Aaron Rodgers was actually a guest on it. Aaron Rodgers is a massive, massive um, Office fan. Uh, but the best tweet about what Rodgers looked like walking back into Green Bay's facilities yesterday with slicked back long hair and big-ass sunglasses and this office T-shirt and a backpack and shorts and sandals. 
Somebody tweeted out, and I don't know who this person was, Michael Salfino tweeted out, Rodgers looks like he just changed into these clothes after being hosed down by the wolf. The wolf, of course, from Pulp Fiction, Harvey Keitel, and the famous scene with Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta when the wolf says, you're 30 minutes away, I'll be there in 10. And they called the wolf in to clean up the mess. Uh, And then Travolta and Samuel L. ended up with T-shirts that looked very much like the T-shirt that Aaron Rodgers was wearing when he reported to work yesterday. That was the best tweet on the Aaron Rodgers look by Miles. Rodgers looks like he just changed into these clothes after being hosed down by the wolf. That's it for today. Back tomorrow with Tommy. You're Jimmy, right? This is your house? Sure is. I'm Winston Wolf. I solve problems. Good, we got one. So I heard. May I come in? Uh, yeah, please do. You must be Jules, which would make you Vincent. Let's get down to brass tacks, gentlemen. If I was informed correctly, the clock is ticking. Is that right, Jimmy? Uh, 100%. Your wife, Bonnie, comes home at 9.30 in the a.m., is that correct? Uh-huh. I was led to believe if she comes home and finds us here, she wouldn't appreciate none too much. She wouldn't that. All right, that gives us... 40 minutes to get the fuck out of Dodge. Which, if you do what I say, when I say it, should be plenty. Now, you got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.